I felt like it was almost my responsibility to make the other artists that weren't showing in the galleries feel that they had a place. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly episodes with people around the world who share our love of printmaking. If you like what we do, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a world of difference. Or just tell a fellow print friend about the podcast, and maybe they'll enjoy it too. We also have a Patreon page where supporters can join at tiers that start at just a dollar a month, and that helps to keep us bringing you printmaking content every week. You also get thank yous like exclusive merch, as well as access to bonus content. Shop Talk with our editor, Timothy Pauschak. These are quick and dirty tips and tricks with our guests about materials, processes, business advice, and general studio nonsense. So if that sounds like something you might be interested in, check out the link in the show notes and sign up today. And if you want to save a little cash while still supporting the show, you can now sign up for a yearly subscription and receive 15% off the tier price. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. Products like Arnheim 1618, a high-quality, low-cost paper made in collaboration with a historic paper mill in the city of Arnheim. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak, swears by it for printing lithographs. And our friend and guest of episode number four, Miles Calvert, evangelizes its use yearly, encouraging students to participate in Speedball's new impressions contest, where they produce work in every print medium. So if you're looking for an affordable paper that can support whatever inky ideas you want to throw at it, then head on over to speedballart.com to find out where you can pick up the start of your next edition. Print friends, I have some great news for you. The West Virginia University School of Art and Design's printmaking program is looking for motivated and ambitious artists who want to be a part of their active print community. And between now and the 15th of January, they're waiving application fees for their MFA and MA programs. You might recognize the name West Virginia University from my chats with Bryn Parrott, Olivia Richardson of the Radical Intersectional Printmakers Guild, Stephanie Alanese, and Martin Mazora, all who studied in the printmaking program there. You can apply for free using the code GRWVU25. Assistantships and waiver hours are also available to incoming students. You can learn more at artanddesign.wvu.edu or check out their printmaking professor, Joseph Lupo, on Instagram at lupo underscore joseph. If you didn't get your pen and paper or your notes app open in time, do not worry. All of these details are in the show notes. My guest this week is Josh Epstein, also known as Totes Farouche. We talk about his wonderful images of gay men and kink created by the Lino Cut process, queerness in the anime Sailor Moon, being an art class darling, what makes queer art queer, and the role of art galleries in the COVID world. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to print rainbow rolls with Josh Epstein. 
Hi, Josh. How's it going? Hi, Miranda. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really excited to get a chance to talk about your work and your story. I first came across you, I think uh, Speedball actually shared a video of yours or something. And it's just you've got such a distinctive style and such a strong voice that I just immediately was intrigued. And I followed you myself on the old Instagram and just was really impressed by the voice that you have and how consistently you produce work and the way you document it. And I'm really excited to learn more about you and how it all came to be. Yeah, awesome. Thanks. I'm I'm glad you found me too. And uh, Speedball, they've been really awesome. I've actually done a couple um, Instagram takeover things with them. So it's, oh, nice. it's good to hear that people are finding other artists through them. I know they really like want to promote diverse voices. So yeah, glad you found me through there. Definitely, definitely. They're, they're great friends of the podcast. And um, I think just great people, like whenever we interact with them, they just seem like people who really have been conscious about hiring good people to be part of that team and who really have their hearts and minds in the right places. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what you want. That's what we want. Absolutely. So before we get into more specific questions about your work, I always ask everyone to introduce themselves by way of answering the questions, just who you are, where you are, and what you do. Cool. Love it. Okay. So who I am, I guess, um, just want my name or like more about my like identity. Yeah, usually that sort of is a, a, a people often take it as an invitation, yeah, to introduce themselves, whether they, you know, what they like to be called, their pronouns, if that's a part of how they identify and like to introduce themselves, Cool. you know, their ethnicity, just whatever you interpret it as, we hear it in a lot of different ways. So yeah, if you've got your, your elevator pitch of who you are. <laughs> Perfect. All right. So uh, my name is Josh Epstein. I do go by Totes Feroche. Um, that's my artist moniker. And I consider myself a queer artist, primarily um, printmaking, but I do illustration and design as well. Um, you asked where I am. So I live in Chicago. Um, I'm originally from Detroit. And yeah, I've been here. I just celebrated my 10 year anniversary living in Chicago. So mm. I really love it here. Um, this is home for me now. And yeah, I, the art scene is really amazing here. Mm. So that's something that keeps me around. Definitely. I've, I know that Chicago just seems like an amazing place for printmaking. You know, you've got uh, CPC, you've got uh, mm-hmm. Spudnik. Sorry. Oh my gosh. Spudnik. Spudnik. Yeah. yeah. So uh, for a second, I thought it was Spudnik. And then I, I questioned myself halfway through that sentence for some reason. Yeah. But you've got Spudnik. <laughs> um, we've talked to many wonderful printmakers there. So I'm I'm always happy to talk to someone in Chicago. It yeah. sounds like such an exciting I place love to both be. Of those. Mm. Yeah. I've, I've worked at both um, places. I used to go to Spudnik pretty regularly. And yeah, they're really great. Yeah. And so you s- mentioned in your introduction of yourself that. Um, your name is Josh, but in the art world, you go by Totes Feroche. And that's actually your Instagram handle as well. And I've seen it in mm-hmm. your email signature. And I just am really curious, what exactly does that mean to you? And where does it come from? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, it's really so like I said, I'm, I'm queer. Um, I'm a cis gay man. But I've really like my whole life kind of um, been a little more feminine. And like, that's something that I feel like growing up has been a little bit of a struggle for me. But then as I've matured, 
and been around more queer people. It's just something that I've grown to really find, like, I've embraced it myself. So Mm -hmm. the name Totsferosh was something that, like, when I was still really shy, unsure of myself, I probably went to, like, my first gay bar when I was underage, like, in college. And I remember showing up and a friend of mine who was a new friend um, saw me, like, kind of nervous at the... um, entrance of the bar and was like oh my god josh you look totes feroche tonight and i was just like oh my god i love that so much like that's so fun and i've just adopted it as like a name that i really like because it's it kind of emphasizes like my queerness and Mm -hmm. what makes me unique and feel like at home in this community that embraced me after sort of feeling like i couldn't myself for so long. Yeah, yeah. It's such a beautiful, affirming thing to hear, I could imagine, when you're sort of standing on the precipice of of stepping into Mm -hmm. yourself and your identity and what will be your community is just a little baby human out in the world. So I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so you you said that you grew up in Detroit before coming to Chicago. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you? And what role did art play in that part of your life? Yeah, um, Detroit's an interesting area. So I grew up in the suburbs. I lived in the city in college. And it's really interesting because it's so rapidly changing. Mm. Um, Kind of as a kid, it was kind of like, oh, like downtown, you just don't go there. It's not safe. It's only for like, a sporting event type thing. But then as I was in college, I really found that like, it's a really interesting city and they have a really dynamic art scene. There's a lot of cool street art down there. And in the last probably five years or so, it's really the, the city has really expanded a lot and a lot of um, like big businesses have started investing in the city. And that has also come to invest in like the art scene so like in the last couple years uh I forget who it is but somebody who owns maybe it's like Domino's or you know one of those like Mm -hmm. big companies that's from Detroit they purchased a very very large cause sculpture um Mm -hmm. like cause the pop artist Mm -hmm. and there's several Hebrew Brantley murals he's a really big artist from Chicago um and yeah they've just been really investing a lot of money into the arts so it's it's really cool that's always wonderful Definitely. to hear. I, I love yeah. stories of cities that, I don't know, people, I know it feels sort of almost cruel to say, but maybe people sort of like write off, like, oh, Detroit, you know, what do you think of? Like, yeah. abandoned houses, kind of been, like, right? Abandoned, exactly, yeah. yeah. And so I love to hear that it it's um, getting some arts funding and that, of course, brings people, you know, and, and brings jobs mm-hmm. and brings... Uh, culture and vibrancy and and all of that. So I'm really glad to hear that. I've always been kind of intrigued by Detroit. I've met some really good people from Detroit. So I'm I'm glad to hear that it's it's getting a, a, a little bit more vibrancy to it maybe than it had a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so when you were growing up, was art a big part of your life? Were you a kid who draws a lot? Were you someone who was, you know, the art class darling? Like, what was that like for you? Yeah. 
Oh my God, the art class, darling. I love that. Um, I actually, I came in second place for like most likely to be an artist or something like that yeah. in high school. And I was devastated that I didn't win. Oh. And then, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say I was always the art class darling. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, art was a huge part of my life from when I was a small child. So like, again, I mentioned I, I definitely had like different interests than the other boys growing up. I was kind mm-hmm. of feminine and I was obsessed with dolls and Barbies and fashion. So I feel like art really played a really important role in helping me find things to entertain myself. So like maybe I didn't have the whole collection of Barbies because Barbies weren't for boys, but I would make my own dolls out of cardboard and Mm. make them clothes and things like that. So I feel like art definitely helped me find myself as a child. Um, And then, yeah, just going into uh, elementary school and middle school and then high school, I was always drawn to different um, classes that were related to art. And uh, I mentioned to you earlier before the call that I'm a designer uh, in my nine to five job. So like that definitely helped me come into that role, just drawing a lot and then eventually drawing on the computer when back in the early 2000s, computer (laughs) drawing was like, a genre before designing was. And yeah, that's, it it really helped me find my way, I would say. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think that, um, you know, the art class and sort of art culture in high school, when you're growing up, it can be such a safe place, I think, for any Mm -hmm. child who doesn't feel like they're really fitting in or that they know that there's something about them that, sets them apart from the kids who just yeah. seem to fit in and do everything and, you know, th- throw footballs and or know how to pluck their eyebrows or can walk in heels, you know, like whatever it is that, that makes, yeah. Really, there's a funny meme that's like, um, behind every gay boy, there's an English teacher that's like waiting to listen to that or something like that. Oh so like gosh. for me, it was the art teacher. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And I I think that's so sweet, too, because something that's so true about people who go into the arts or go into something like English as teachers, you know, they're they're the often the wonderful little weirdos as well growing up. You know, that's why they wanted to get, you know, their degree in uh, 18th century Italian poetry or something. And then, you know, ended up teaching a a bunch of, uh, you know, hormone fueled kids that couldn't care less <laughs> yeah that's, yeah that has to be I feel like when you're taking your aptitude tests or whatever they're like okay if you're the weird kid like you have to go into either 18th yes. century romantic <laughs> literature or like this obscure uh, art history or whatever exactly exactly and then so of course they they really like end up being I think beautiful mentors as you said yeah mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah. You worded it much more elegantly than, than I did. <laughs> so, so you were um, a kid who drew a lot. You're a kid who uh, picked up drawing on the computer as well. Where does printmaking come into your story? Yeah, great question. Um, so I like to say that my style is very, I mean, I don't like to say it. It, it is, but I, I continuously say that my style is really inspired by comics and anime and Mm -hmm. um to me that sort of style of comics was so like easily translatable in lino cut which is my preferred printmaking Mm -hmm. method just because of the graphicness of it and 
the ease of, I don't want to say ease, easy because it's not it's technically complex, but the fact that I can create uh, different thicknesses in line strokes. And it's really about the graphics and less about um, like the expressive textures, which I'm personally not as gifted in. Mm -hmm. So I would say the like very black and white aspect is something that I find um, a lot of skill in with what I can do and what I like to create. So I'd say that's how I got into printmaking. I was obsessed with anime as a teenager and I remember picking up um a lino block in sixth grade I think they had in their art class and I I think I did like Sailor Moon for Uh uh, my first lino cut print I was like oh this is really yeah really cool (laughs) yeah oh wonderful yeah but yeah like I said I mean I I always like telling the story whenever it comes up or, or I'll make it come up because I am obsessed with Sailor Moon but Anytime that um, I think about like anime and superheroes, I just think about how it really does find a lot of commonality with queer people because Mm -hmm. just thinking about like X-Men or some of the other like weird superheroes where there was always something kind of off about them or like a unique trait. And I feel like I always really related to that because like Cyclops was ostracized from the normal people because he had this strange ability, but he was a perfectly nice and kind person. So I think I was really drawn to that idea Yeah, that people are born with this thing that makes them unique and different, but they're kind of hated for it in society. But then in their own little group that they create together, the X-Men find each other and then they really celebrate each other's unique powers Mm. and do something good with it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an incredibly powerful narrative. And I think another thing, too, that you see is the stories around transformation tend to be really powerful, I think, Mm. to queer audiences and within queer communities. You know, this idea of I can say this thing and I can transform into this strong person. This is again very very apt for Sailor Moon, although a lot of a yes. lot of anime in particular have this transformation trope that they mm-hmm. use. Um where it's like I can turn into this creature who's beautiful and strong and I can't be hurt and I'm, you know, I have this sort of power when I'm in this uh this state, you know. And I think that that is in some ways the sort of narrative of a lot of queer people's lives where they might be from a place where they're not safe and they don't feel protected and then when they can leave, they can go to a city, they can find their people. That is a form of transformation um where they can live in a way that truly reflects what they want and what fulfills them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it's it's a really beautiful narrative that I think a lot of these sort of stories have. Mm. And an, another reason I'm drawn to them, I mean, Sailor Moon, like you said, she is kind of like a weird, like clumsy kid that uh-huh. like she has her own posse of friends, but she's not like the popular kid in school. And then she transforms into essentially exactly her but with like a shorter skirt but she has (laughs) powers and everyone loves her and she's like celebrated by the city so yeah yeah definitely definitely I feel like um if we if this was if this was a podcast about you know queer representation and anime I feel like we could have a huge a huge chat about how um, I know. Should we do like a spinoff? Yes, right. Like I'm like, I, it, you know, I grew up loving Sailor Moon, 
And I remember all of the disappointment I felt when I realized how much queerness the Japanese versions afforded kids to see and how it was edited for American audiences because, you know, in... I don't know when I would have been watching it, you know, at 1998 or something. It was like, we can't, mm-hmm. we can't show two women in love. It will destroy the children, you know, <laughs> like in the U.S. Where of I, course, It boggled yeah. my mind when I learned that, like, it was censored. Yes. Yeah. Such an, an interesting conversation must have happened in the whatever the room where they were, like, translating these stories. Right, right. Yeah, that's it's so interesting. I hadn't ever thought about like that actual moment when they're saying, well, yeah. you know, there's this extremely popular cartoon in Japan, and I'm sure we could t- make a lot of money off of it. But there are gay characters, you know, <laughs> like, American children can't be seeing these things, you know, <laughs> just like, what was that conversation like? I know. Yeah. Man, to be a fly on the wall. Right. Well, anyways, I, I don't I don't want to commandeer the entire podcast talk about Sailor Moon, even though I could. So we could, I'll we could, but yeah, let's let's fo- stay focused, Josh and Miranda. Stay focused. Yes, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so but I think this is a good little bit of segue to talk about um, you know, in your in your email signature, you've got this wonderful phrase, which is celebrating, which makes the LGBTQ community special through art, which I think is just mm-hmm. a, a beautiful sentiment. And so I'd love to hear the story of where this exploration of queerness started to find its way into your work. And, you know, how did you discover that for yourself, this was something that was really going to be important to you to make a really integral part of your practice? Yeah, I love that question. Um, So like I said, I was always really interested in fashion, like Mm -hmm. making my own little characters. I would, I probably had my Cyclops um, action figure and I would like make him clothes because his costume wasn't that exciting or whatever. So as I graduated, even in college and as I graduated college and was just beginning to not pursue art as a career, but just for fun. My work was always really focused on fashion and beauty and just luxury things that like were really appealing aesthetically, Mm. but didn't really have a lot of purpose to them. So like for years I did that. I had these like handsome men and beautiful women uh, prints that I would make and they're they're quite lovely and I still have some um, like hung up. But in the last probably two years, I started to gain some more traction in gallery shows. And I started noticing that, at least in Chicago, Mm -hmm. there were not very many other queer artists, Mm. especially in the mainstream galleries. And I felt like it was almost my responsibility to make the other artists that weren't showing in the galleries feel that they had a place. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. So I started transitioning my work to be more openly queer because, one, I mean, it's fun. Yeah. I want to make sure I'm making a statement, but I really wanted to create space for others. So people who may not feel like they can show in these galleries because it is like more um, formally trained or it's a certain style or they only do this um, aesthetic, then... Like, maybe I fit that aesthetic, but my message isn't necessarily the same as others. Mm -hmm. So then artists may see that and then feel that they can now go to that gallery, apply to be in that gallery, show similar art, 
in similar spaces and just really start more of a conversation about what is art, um, what makes art queer, Mm-hmm. And yeah, have that story. Yeah, wonderful. What do you think makes art queer? Mm, this is a great question. I, yeah, I'm, I'm always really curious. Thinking about it myself. Um, so, not to jump the gun, I w- I'll, I'll probably plug this again later. But I'm curating a show next month, and it is all about queer art and mm-hmm. what makes your. It's kind of talking about the idea of pride as like the pride parade, but also pride in yourself and pride for who you are, but from the lens of sexuality and like the sex aspect being a really huge part of being queer. Mm. And there's actually been a lot of talks in the last year or two about making pride, the the pride parade more family friendly and taking the sex out of it and just making it more approachable. And so this show that I'm curating is really making a statement against that, that we were ostracized for decades because of the people we loved and the people we wanted to have sex with, basically. Yeah. So taking that out of the idea of pride is really removing a big part of our identity and our struggle and what the reason for pride was in the first place. So I think mm-hmm. there's obviously many layers to queer art, but to answer your question, I think the sexual act aspect of it really is a huge part. And I think just looking at a lot of queer, non-queer people may think, oh, well, that's just, you know, pornographic or right. like erotic just to make like it taboo. But it's not like this is a huge part of my life that has been censored from the moment that I first drew a picture of two boys kissing and like that wasn't allowed to be displayed in my school but a picture of of Aladdin and Jasmine kissing is perfectly acceptable for five-year-olds to see so Mm. yes I think that that is something that I'm constantly thinking about when I think about queer art for myself and, and the art that I enjoy looking at I mean there's obviously many more layers right. to being queer and not everyone I mean there is a large part of queerness now that is not sexual at all. Mm. I like asexuality is one of the reasons I believe why um some people didn't want the sexual aspect in pride. Mm. But yeah, to to make that argument again, like this was part of the original intent with pride and something that we wanted to celebrate. So not to say that their voices shouldn't be heard as well, Uh um, but the statement of, of my specific show is kind of opposite of that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think that that also is, yeah, a really significant point as well is that, yeah, like queerness is such a large space and with undefined Mm -hmm. borders. Um, But to kind of, as you say, go to the heart of what Pride originally was, it it was very much about taking the most repressed socially aspects of queerness, which was like the actual, the sex, the kink, you know, however you want to define it and saying Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to walk down the street <laughs> with this on display um, with everyone, exactly. you know, with other people. And it's it's the power and the safety in that mass of the actual parade that makes it um, such a powerful statement, too. Yeah. Mm. So I think that um, this brings me to another question that I had about your work, which is that a lot of your figures have 
almost a vintage feel to them when I look at them. And I think part of that is um, that graphic art, you know, almost comic book aesthetic a little bit, but Mm -hmm. also a lot of your guys look like they wouldn't really be out of place in say like the Castro in the 1970s or, or even there's like strong um, Tom of Finland vibes Mm -hmm. and some of the work that of course, you know, Tom of Finland, I was looking up a little bit about him when I was researching questions for you. And, you know, he passed away in 1991. And I'm like, I'm not sure when you were born, but like, you may not have been born in 1991. <laughs> and so, you know, it's... It I has, was born, you for was, the record. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, but if you think I wasn't born, then that's totally fine, too. We can go with that. Yeah, 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 exactly. We'll, we'll side note, yeah. <laughs> so it's... It, I'll, I'll give you a picture of me from like 10 years ago to use for uh, the, the screencast for this. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So, um, so I guess I'm. My question is kind of: is that that connection to that feels like that again? That that vintage or kind of like that maybe that root of when people started to mm-hmm. see queerness in the public stage. Where does that connection come for you? Is that just like a look that you're drawn to? Do you have a, a personal story with it? Is it just what you like to draw? Where does it the the story behind that? Yeah, I think. I mean, you touched on a couple of the items already, but I feel like the 60s and 70s were really a huge era for sexual liberation for everybody, Mm. but then also just like the start of the gay rights movements. And that style, and just thinking about like what other iconic figures that were gay at the time that were really the first to be like on TV and uh, on Mm. the radio and such, they kind of have that aesthetic. So I'm thinking of like, the Village People, yep. um, Freddie Mercury, Elton mm-hmm. John. I'm obsessed with all of them. I have all of them on vinyl because I have to, you know, be super literal with uh-huh. it and, and take it to that era. But I'm actually like so drawn to the Village People because I think the idea that there was this extremely homoerotic themed mm. band and they have the like three most popular wedding slash baseball game slash you name it, songs of all time, like the YMCA, it's all about like hooking up in the steam room at the YMCA because there was nowhere else you could go. So the fact that they're playing this at like kids' birthday parties is just hilarious to me. But just the aesthetic that they were meant to be almost like a fantasy of hyper-masculine figures uh, in that era I think it's just really interesting and times change obviously and like toxic masculinity is not something that we're trying to perpetuate all the time mm-hmm. and yet I'd say I there's still something interesting about that like hyper beefy man juxtaposed with like another maybe softer fashionable like just different figures I just really like incorporating but I always seem to be drawn back to that like 1970s era. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and it's it is such a strong aesthetic. And I think that that's maybe part of what you're saying there. That it it is, mm-hmm. it is such a. And if you're interested in kind of fashion and the way people express themselves that way, it has such a strong voice. You know, to that look of um, you know a. a a hairy chest with packs that's draped in sequins. You know, it's like mm-hmm. the way that um, these archetypes that we have can be juxtaposed like that gives such a, a, a strong voice. Yeah, 
Very interesting. Yeah, I'm writing that idea down. I like it. <laughs> I'll credit you, I promise. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I think, too, that people um, really, you know, if, if you're someone who, I guess what I'm sort of thinking about, like, if you're someone who is in the, the business of visual communication, and you said that you work as a designer as mm-hmm. well, so I think designers often think in very creative, strong ways about how what is this piece saying? You know, how is this communicating in a very real way? You know, in the last uh, 50 years, 60 years, that has become a really uh, good shorthand for queerness as well. I think in a way that maybe not a whole lot of other images have that history and that uh, strong foothold in almost no matter where you are, if you see it, you know it's queer, you know, in, in a way that um, uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'd be hard pressed to think of another image that has that same kind of power to it. Yeah. The interesting thing about what you just said, because I was just thinking like Thomas Finland, he was I don't I'm not an expert on him, but I assume he was like pretty big in the 60s and 70s. Uh-huh. And like those images today would still be considered like taboo if you're mm-hmm. walking down the street with, mm-hmm. you know, like two beefy cops with bulges like that image walking down like your little hometown street is like not something that is accepted so to think about the fact that this type of art is still Mm. very um I can't think of the word but like it's very taboo almost in many parts of the world yeah is just interesting to think about right yeah that like you know decades decades on Mm -hmm. they still carry that power of the taboo as you say yeah Yeah. Yeah. like I have one design that I did that I wear on a t-shirt all the time and like I won't even realize I'm wearing it but it's a um Pikachu and the trainer and the trainer has him on a leash Uh and like Pikachu's in like bondage basically And, and I'm like okay, is this like so much different from Tama Finland other than it's Pikachu? Yeah, yeah. Like it's kind of the same level of taboo. I definitely, yeah. Yeah, like I'll walk into a gas station and then like I'll (laughs) maybe get a look. (laughs) I actually have a specific question about the Pikachu Ash Catcher, sure. Kink Masters. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe I didn't yes, have a yes. specific question, but I had it in my notes <laughs> that I just because it, as you said, you 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 have it on T-shirts, and I guess um, I I just I think in my notes all I said all I have it says is it is everything. How did this come into being? <laughs> is what it has. <laughs> I actually have a story about it. If you want to hear it, I, I mean do. the T-shirt is. I just it was probably my favorite design that I've done in a while and I knew I had to have it on a t-shirt but the inspiration for it so my partner and I we've been together for um eight and a half years and so our first year dating so I'm 31 so eight and a half years ago I would have been 30 24 Mm. and so we we lived in Boys Town in Chicago and it was you know Halloween the gays love Halloween we go all out um I begged him to go as Pikachu and Ash for our first <laughs> Halloween that was gonna be Pikachu and this was before like the Pokemon Go craze I think Pokemon was still kind of like nerdy and weird it wasn't like cool like it is now so I was like oh this is so like nostalgic and fun and like you know everyone's gonna love it we show up at a bar everyone's like oh your Pikachu's so cute I'm in like 
a yellow furry vest and like yellow sweatpants, like very wholesome. My partner Eddie is in like this cute jacket that we hot glued together or whatever. So, you know, we're getting like compliments and whatnot. And then we turn the corner and there's just another Ash and Pikachu at the bar, but it's a like very beefy older gentleman in um, his underwear and he's holding a leash Uh and there's a Pikachu that's like kneeling next to him. He probably was standing because it's a bar, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to be down on that floor. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But he was, he was standing next to him. He was also in like a a leather thong with a tail and the Pikachu ears. And essentially they were both naked. And I was like, oh my God, this is like the advanced version of the Pikachu costume that we didn't quite do. So I was like, I need to remember this for the rest of my life. And years later, I made this artwork of it. That's so beautiful. And I I love that kind of, um, that kind of. I don't know that almost like uh, like you you have some like queer elders right that are like yeah let me exactly. let me show you how they, it's they done it yeah <laughs> we were first timers yeah yeah exactly it's like that's that's good that's good this is the advanced level <laughs> that's it's so wonderful and so um it's and so when you wear the the shirt around Chicago, does any do people say anything, or do you mostly just get kind of double takes? No one's ever said anything. Really? I'm like waiting for. I think because of the pandemic, I haven't like worn it to a gay bar, which oh, I yeah. would be offended if no one was like, "Oh my god, I love your shirt." Yes, but yeah, no one really has commented. It's actually um, I live down the street from this cute little boutique. Uh, called Wolf Bay, and they have prints of this mm. Pikachu artwork, and there's one in the window. And every time I walk by, I'm like, oh, that's my slutty Pikachu. Yeah. <laughs> like, I brag about it to everyone I see. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. It, yeah. I We, um, one of the, the merch for the podcast um, is a shirt that says, I heart cock. And then right above cock, small is written Hieronymus. Because Hieronymus Cock was a really influential 16th century print publisher. <laughs> but is the shirt. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So it's like. I mean, uh, everyone knows. Right. Everyone knows Hieronymus Cock. If you, you hear the name once, you can't forget it. Um, and so it's. It's uh, anyway, it's just really funny because we've sold a ton, a ton of stickers of it. And we've only sold one T-shirt to the incredible Miles Calvert, um, friend of the pod. And so I just, I, yeah. I really, um, I remember I was watching and waiting, you know, for just like the little, uh, the little sales notifications we get from, I can't remember what site we use, but one of them. And like, I was just like, I was like, come on, come on. When is it going to sell? When's it going to sell? And I was like, <laughs> then when Miles told I need, me, I was I like, need one. Well, you need the gays. Yes. They love stuff like that. <laughs> Come, if there's any gays listening out there, buy that shirt, buy my <laughs> sexy Pikachu. Yes. Yeah, especially like that 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 crossover, like the 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 gay printmakers, you know. <laughs> I know it's honestly it's like such a niche market. I'm sure. Yeah. Like, where are they all? I, you know, it's interesting. I I hear that. Um, and and whenever I have a queer artist on the podcast who talks about their queer identity, because I've had lots of queer artists who we don't talk about their queer identity because it's not in their work. It doesn't come up. You know, it's just mm-hmm. not, you know, um, like they're they're definitely um, out, but it's just not 
a part of their story in terms of their printmaking story, which is what they, they come on to share. I've heard right? that a lot, yeah. actually, which is surprising. Mm, yeah. Like, it, I've talked to um, some friends, and, like, I remember one of my friends saying, I'm queer, but my art isn't innately mm. queer. It's queer because I made it. And I'm like, that's so interesting because, like, maybe I'm just a narcissist and all of my <laughs> art is about my identity. I don't know. <laughs> That's I, I think that that goes back to the question we were talking about earlier about, you know, what makes queer art? Um, and, you know, could mm-hmm. a straight person make queer art? Could a queer person make straight art or non-queer art or however you want to identify it? You know, and, and through queerness, does everything like if you are a queer person, does everything you touch or create kind of let be left imbued with that? It's it's a huge question, um, which I think is yeah. uh, always in flux. And I think. Um, you know, doesn't have a hard and fast answer for sure. Yeah, it's a great question, and, and I'm not going to be the one to answer it for everybody. <laughs> Josh, we, we've got you on the mic right now. Yeah, we need the oh my God. universal answer. It's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, we'll we'll look at your um, your your queer exhibition for some insights that you're curating. I think. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm interested to see what everyone creates too, because maybe I'm wrong, and and I'm the only one that's doing sexy daddies and. <laughs> Everyone else is doing other things that they, they have their identity as a part of. Yeah, yeah. I it, I don't consume um, a whole lot of uh, mainstream media. You know, part of that is is mainstream mm-hmm. U.S. media. Part of that is just being. I haven't lived in the U.S. for for three years. Um, I haven't really had access to anything that's not sort of on Instagram, but. I sure. saw um, I, I saw this clip because I, I kind of feel like everything sort of good will filter its way to me anyway. You know, all the top stuff will like someone will repost it or make a TikTok oh, about sure. it and I'll see it. And so and I saw I think you're it, getting it filtered out like all the junk. Yeah. Yeah. Just the, the, the cream, the cream off the top hopefully will reach me. And yeah. I saw something. I, I guess it was a, a, a bit maybe at a, a recent Oscars and it was it was had to do with like i can't remember if they said if they used queer or gay but it was like things you thought you didn't know were gay in the movies and one of them had to do with um anything laura dern is in like any scene with laura dern oh do you yes, remember of this course. and like and yeah I, she's an icon she is and yet it's like why do you think jurassic park was so popular right <laughs> it's because like the the gays took their friend their like fake girlfriend with them because they wanted to see the Laura Dern scene and the girlfriends wanted the Jeff Goldblum like with his low cut shirt right yeah I guess the gays probably yeah, wanted that too they want yeah that that iconic shot of him you know in his leather pants with his shirt open and his his leg in a I splint mean, right it's so homoerotic let's be real it's it's amazing I mean it very could well be in one of your lino cuts like maybe that like, I, yeah I I need a series like yeah. all the Jeffs. Exactly. I'll get Jeff Goldblum. Exactly. Eh, there's no one else. No and, one else I need. And and I love for me that really felt meaningful in this way of letting America, you know, letting the USA, letting um, John Q. Driveway into this idea of the kind of expansiveness of gayness because Laura Dern is not gay. Mm-hmm. But she is gay, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like it's this it's like um, and and so this idea that, you know, gay cinema isn't just Brokeback Mountain. You know, there's there's this kind of um, energy around queerness and gayness that is much more expansive than just 
homosexuality, you know, like full stop, yeah. right? Um, and so anyway, just as, as we're kind of having this conversation about what queerness is and what makes queer art, I just remember that as a moment that I was like, okay, I think this is really good that maybe it's giving people out in the suburbs or, you know, all the millions of people who watch the Oscars, maybe a hint into that kind of expansiveness of queer culture. Yeah. I mean, it's almost a direct argument to what I said before that like, my sexuality is such a big part of me being queer because the Laura Dern example is not at all. And even mm-hmm. thinking about like so many, I mean, gay men are always drawn to female pop stars and like even more so the, the, I hate to say, but the failed ones. Mm-hmm. So like how, how many straight men or women know the lead singer from the band Girlicious from making the band, whatever, you know, some like weird, obscure female band, but like every single gay sees them every year at their pride festival or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's just interesting that these things that are part of gay culture, but are inherently not actually queer. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's, 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 this is why I think it makes for such interesting dialogue is because mm-hmm. like I said, I think that the borders are so slippery and, um, a lot of it is, you know, linguistics as well, you know, what, um, just the, the labels that we put on something that could be, you know, really a feeling or an intuition even. Um, yeah. and, uh, it's, it's wonderful. And I, I, I love that people are using art and visual communication as another way to explore it. Because of course, anytime you get to leave the world of language and the limitation of words, and the limitation of communicating that way behind, I one of the reasons why I love working in the arts is when you get to enter that space where you get to leave the left side of the brain behind when you're trying to figure out questions like this. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> so you recently, I guess it was actually this summer, you had your first solo exhibition. Is that correct? It is correct. Yes, I did. It was here in Chicago. I, so it actually was supposed to be last summer. And then it was kind of that weird, like, is the pandemic going to be a real thing or not? And it was really down to the wire. We camped it like weeks before it was supposed to be. And so I'm honestly so glad that I was able to have an extra year because like we were saying before, like a lot of my pieces were more surface level, I would say, Mm. going into it last year. And then with the exhibition being about a month or two ago, I had a lot more time to think about what I wanted my message to be. And so it really became about, I mean, kind of going back to your question before my email signature, like it's a silly, I mean, not silly, but like your email signature, who actually reads that? But the (laughs) idea of celebrating like how diverse the queer community is, is what I decided I needed my show to be about. Mm. So they were all lino cut portraits of different queer people, either people I knew, people I have seen, you know, uh, on Instagram or, or some had some interaction with, or some of them were just people I made up that I knew I wanted this type of person that I had in my head in an art piece. Mm hmm. And sorry, I commandeered your question to to talk about myself again. But I, <laughs> did you did you have a specific something you wanted no, to know? This, we are here to talk about yourself. Do not worry. That's yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, I think I it, my question really was just sort of, um, and you sort of you already kind of addressed it, but I'm wondering what it's like for artists who are 
kind of reaching these highlights, these significant points in their life during COVID, you know, the kind of artistic COVID mm-hmm. babies um, and how that was different maybe than what you kind of expected when you were thinking about, oh, when I have my first solo exhibition, you know, I'm sure you have ideas of what it could be yeah. like, but of course, COVID is really fucked with a lot. <laughs> so It has. I mean, it's an interesting question. I haven't thought about it that much, except right before we started talking, I, I was watching The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills because my partner is obsessed with them. Uh-huh. And Lisa Rinna had her debut of her makeup line, and it was during COVID, and she just had her, like, five friends there and she said you know it's a lot smaller than I wanted this debut party to be but I'll I'll work with what I can Mm. and I think that's kind of how I felt about my show too I mean I've been dreaming of having a solo exhibition probably for the last four or five years and it almost seemed unattainable so when I was put in the position where I had the opportunity to create my own show, I had this really grand idea of what it would be with like a red carpet and everybody uh-huh. in front of a step and repeat. And it was like a, a gala event or whatever, which I mean, maybe like cause has that sort of event. Right. I doubt mine actually would have been like that. But I mean, in the end, I had all of my best friends there. It was a a small gallery that only allowed a certain amount of people Mm -hmm. in at a time. But I mean, I got to show my work and it still felt really amazing to have a show. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess to answer your question, I do feel like I probably missed out on some things with it being my debut show. But that's not to say the art world isn't changing. And even if the pandemic continues longer, like these sort of gallery openings will have to evolve and be able to be enjoyed by more people in some sort of a safer way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, I think, particularly with the Delta variant, we're all entering a space where we're questioning, Mm -hmm. okay, how do we live with Miss Rona? You know, she's yeah, I know. she's moved in. Um, how, what will it look like? And and you know, from you know, it's sort of a tangential, but like you know, from what I've read, people have been you know the 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 smarts out on the internets have been saying it will end. It's just going to take longer, and it's going to be more like look either you're getting vaccinated and you're getting your boosters, or you've had it and you have immunity that way. Or it killed you. And that's really, that's how mm-hmm. it's going to end. You know, is it's just eventually everyone will have interacted with it in some way at some point. And that will when, be when we see the end of it. And that could be years from down the line. So um, we're going to have to, yeah, learn how to live alongside this uh, this virus. Yeah. Well, um, that segues perfectly into a, a very small plug that I would Please. love to do, if that's okay. Please, um, yes. I'm actually par- partnering with the Design Museum of Chicago. Um, and they're employing several different local artists and we're creating artworks promoting the city of Chicago and anyone who sees artwork to get vaccinated. And it just everyone, like, I think a lot of people maybe don't realize this, but it's not about you. It's about your community. Mm -hmm. So like, please get vaccinated for the people that 
either can't or it just isn't enough to help them from being extremely sick. Yeah, like everyone needs to do their their part somehow. So that's what this initiative is all about. So be on the lookout. Um, I'll be posting it on Instagram. So if you don't follow me yet, please do um, to see what I'm working on. It's at totes Feroche. I'm sure you'll uh, Miranda put the link wherever so people can find it if they want absolutely yeah so I had one more question for you as we're kind of wrapping up and I'm glad that you you plugged your Instagram because that's always one of my questions is for people to please uh, let the listeners know where they can be found but so I'm thinking as you know as someone who's had this experience of their first solo exhibition in COVID Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could kind of speak to the significance of still having that experience of work being shown physically work being seen physically Um, because I I always am interested in the way in which that as a very very long-standing tradition in the arts still sort of holds water Mm -hmm. because I you know we get a lot of talk about oh like traditional gallery spaces they're going to be gone in five years no one needs them you know I can I can sell through Instagram now you know all this kind of thing but mm-hmm. you're someone who's still sort of pursued and went after that experience even in a time where it can be kind of challenging and just maybe why was that significant to you and and what do you think you got out of it that is valuable yeah it's an excellent question and I do I absolutely do not believe in five years galleries mm-hmm. will not be a thing for me the act of going to a gallery and having a night out with friends and and celebrating something, even if it's not your art, if it's an artist you don't know, but you're just going for something to do, it exposes people to artwork who would normally not be seeing it. Mm -hmm. So I think that fact is so important. There were so many people that came to my gallery show who were friends of mine who maybe have never been to a gallery before. Maybe they've been to art art museums, but they didn't know about the local art scene. So I think having gallery shows and inviting your friends, even if they're not going to buy the art, is so important for just getting, creating awareness of these messages that are coming from artworks. And especially when it's either queer artists or artists of color that aren't necessarily going to be in these spaces where everyone is seeing them it's so important that they're available in some physical form. Mm, yeah, I think that's that's a wonderful note to, to wrap things up on because that's such a beautiful message about that inclusivity and that community mm-hmm. and that power of, of coming together to experience art. And let's hope we'll be able to do that safely at least or figure out ways yes. to. Yeah, at some point. So. Let's hope. Yeah. And just, I mean, even if maybe not right now you feel safe, but it's so important to go to these events and support local artists in your communities because they're not making money on Instagram. Yeah. So yeah. you're you're enjoying viewing all of their artwork, but if they can't pay their bills, they're going to stop making that. So mm-hmm. please support local artists. Go to these galleries. Go to your friends' galleries. Just do it. Yeah. yeah. Or else art will be gone. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that people don't think about, you know, and I think I think part mm-hmm. of it is because you see movies and every way like art galleries are portrayed in movies. You've got things like Velvet Buzzsaw, you know, this sort of thing where it's just mm-hmm. such rich people who have so much money and they're so shallow and they're so rude to everyone. And like 
That's I have worked in many commercial galleries, and I have known many gallery owners who pay themselves less than they pay their employees because they believe so much in what they're doing, and the gallery is making such small margins. You know, or 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 gallery owners who will, if they have a slow month, choose not to pay themselves and choose to pay the artists and their employees instead of themselves because they don't make very much and they understand that this is such an important space and such an important way to support artists. So please don't believe what Hollywood says. Most gallery owners yes, truly are in real. it for the love of the art and the supporting of the artists, and they are not wealthy people. They are. They are small business owners, um, you know, just like you want to go support your local bookstore or your local coffee shop. You want to support your local galleries, too. They're just small business owners who are who are trying to make space for art in their community. Yeah, exactly. Yep. It's like soapbox. I'm getting down from it now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I liked it. Thank you so much, Josh, for coming on and speaking. It's been really interesting and fun. And thank you for making beautiful queer prints out in the world. And um, I hope we can can stay in touch. Yeah, of course. Thanks again for having me. And I can't wait to share this podcast on Facebook because that's the only place where my mom can uh, see what I'm doing. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure my my family will be really excited. And of course, I'll, I'll post it on Instagram and wherever too. Okay. All right. Well, have a great uh, rest of your day since it's still the day over there. Yeah. 9 a.m. It's just getting started here. So yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Thanks, Josh. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Stacey Lynn Waddell. We'll talk about her use of branding irons as printmaking, the late great actress Butterfly McQueen, and living the slow life in a manic world. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. <laughs>